0: Um, welcome to everybody for the conference. Uh, sorry for the uh, weather, though I'm told it's going to improve as the day progresses. Uh, and let me start off by introducing our real host, and that's Rick Herman from the Mershon Center.
1: Rick? I'm going to be very brief. asked me to welcome you all, and I'm happy to do that. I remember four years ago, some of you were here, and uh, you came back, and a very successful project that. Uh, and eventually became a book, and we were very pleased that he agreed to do it again four years later here at Marshawn. I'd also like to thank Beth Russell and Dana Whitmere who helped him with a lot of the logistics of this, and the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, and the of Science Department here at Ohio State. I guess I'll just say a few words. Marshawn focuses on three main things, and not because they define the boundaries of security studies. Uh, our focus is on the use of force, we have a large group in military history and in sort of traditional international relations of war. We have a group that focuses on the ideas and cultures that are involved in conflict and cooperation. We have groups here from folklore and sociology, um, English, uh, philosophy. And we have a group that focuses on what we call the institutions that manage violent conflict. And there have been two main foci there, um, largely the law school interested in the lost war. And the laws that apply to people who are either engaged in fighting or caught up in it, and institutions about uh, <coughs> governmental structure, usually democratization and its spread. Uh, one of our larger projects that we've funded now for probably close to a decade is a comparative national election study that's uh, directed by Paul Backman's here and Richard Gunther, who I suspect will be in later. I think it's now more than twenty countries. It uh, meets uh, annually and talks about coordinating and creating, as I understand it, one giant data set someday some we'll day electoral studies across all those 20 countries. Um, <clears throat> this conference obviously fits very centrally in that last little cycle, the studies of elections. Um, Rashawn does not try to compete with the policy groups in Washington. We don't see ourselves in that way at all. We see ourselves more as a center, or a better way to describe it, is trying to basic science. In the social sciences, we look for products that we hope will have shelf life. Uh, we're not trying to look at things that necessarily compete with what uh, Brookings or ADI would put out, but rather we're aiming for university press books and articles, trying to make a virtue out of what is our comparative strength, which is uh, most everyone. Sean is a professor here, at the campus from the of ten to eleven different departments. Uh, the 2008 elections, from my perspective, not only tell us things about technologies for how we vote people vote and for uh, different strategies, but in this particular case also blends deeply to our second field. We've had groups interested in the construction of national identities, uh, in the era of multiculturalism, pulling people together across racial, religious, and ethnic grounds, not always in the United States, in fact, probably of least often uh, thought about in the United States, but I'm very glad to see that one of the themes that Herb decided to include here, one that's obviously the Obama candidacy, and then his election is the construction of a multi-ethnic conception of Americans in America, and how that played in this particular election, which will play not only to our third theme, but also our second theme as well. Nobody comes to listen to the opening remarks, I know that, so I'm going <laughs> to uh, turn this over back to Herb. I want to thank you again. Uh, if you have questions, uh, Beth Russell and Dana are here. There's Dana in the back. Beth will be outside. Welcome. Glad to here. Thanks, Rick.
0: And I think most of the participants have already met Dana Whitner, but uh, let me make sure to introduce her. She's sitting in Bath, back, and so if you have questions <coughs> about things, Dana is the person, and also uh, Rick mentioned Beth Russell, she's the Mershon staff person who's working with us, and I'm sure she'll be in sometime today, you'll have a chance to meet her, but if we have any questions, she's the one who can really help on things too. Um, I wanted to mention some of the people who are here today and some of the people who aren't here today. Uh, first, uh, welcome Joan Huber and Bill Form, uh two prominent sociologists who are uh, joining us today. Uh, also, our very newest faculty member is Nathaniel Swigger, sitting at the same table at our newer campus, but living closer to this campus than, than I do and that most of us do. Um, and I saw Craig Volden come in the room, right? Good. Um, one change from today, Dan Tokaji from the law school will not be able to join today. Uh, we've had a series of uh, uh, people hitting parental. Prop- uh, Illness problems and so on. And so that's going to have some, some effect. Um, take care of that one. How about opening my own? Hey. <laughs> Minor detail. Uh, and I want to be sure to thank our different sponsors, uh, Mershon Center and Rick Herman, again, for the great hospitality and for the sponsorship of this also the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences and the Department of Political Science. And I wanted also to acknowledge that we are trying to move into a innovation group at Ohio State, an Electrical Studies group, and includes the Moritz College of Law. Uh, Ned Foley today will be speaking this morning and you'll see part of the collaboration there. Dan Tokaji, if he's been able to be here, will be part of that also and also the Department of Political Science and many participants um, and also the Department of History, but uh, David Stebbin, who was the person who was involved in that, is the other person who has had parental health issues and won't be here today as a result, unfortunately. Well, I wanted to frame today a little by talking in terms of uh, the 2008 election and to what extent sense a transformational election. I certainly view it as transformational. Uh, the uh, election of African American president, I think, by itself makes it transformational. But the question is always how transformational, and perhaps more so, in what census was it a transformational election? Uh, many elections in U.S. history could be transformational, but I think in the end, very few turn out to be. Uh, and we can certainly judge whether an election has been transformational only in retrospect. I want to go through six different senses in which the 2008 election could be transformational, and really pointing to things that will be discussed in papers today and tomorrow. Uh, The first is in terms of the U.S. image abroad. Uh, And I think the U.S. election last year was uh, unique in the implications for rebranding our image abroad. Uh, Our image was tarnished over the years when we went into Iraq uh, by ourselves without UN support, and especially when no WMDs were found there, and then uh, when American soldiers were found to abuse prisoners in Abu Ghraib. The 2008 election provided the chance for rebranding afterwards, and the election took place with the backdrop of the continuing wars, the continuing wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and then the domestic financial crisis. We might have expected the domestic financial crisis to be the major feature of the election last year, but the major party candidates already chosen their campaign themes well before the crisis became very deep. And so still the military and foreign uh, policy crisis remain important parts of the campaign. And as I think some of the other people will be talking about for the next couple of days, uh, McCain and Obama certainly got their nominations, uh, largely or at least partly on the basis of the war. McCain had been pushing for the surge of U.S. troops for a long time, and claimed considerable credit for its success. Uh, Barack Obama was the only leading contender who had opposed going into Iraq from the very beginning, and that gave him crucial support from the anti-war movement to help him secure the party nomination, uh, and grabbing the nomination from once front runner, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and that meant the two candidates, foreign policy and military policies, were highlighted throughout the campaign. McCain challenging Obama's inexperience in foreign policy is not having visited the Iraq front, and his naivete in being willing to negotiate with foreign enemies of the U.S. without preconditions. And by contrast, Obama was emphasizing his judgment, his judgment in opposing the Iraq war from the start, arguing that Iraq was secondary to the war on terrorism, and advocating increased U.S. troop levels in Afghanistan. Uh, the, US troop Im- the U.S. image abroad was also relevant to the campaign. Uh, few disputed that America's prestige and popularity abroad had declined during the George W. Bush years, but Republicans often emphasized that we shouldn't care about our prestige abroad, that that's not what's so important, uh, whereas the Democrats really saw the Obama candidacy as one that would restore U.S. prestige abroad rather automatically as was the case when he spoke to the large crowds in Berlin in summer 2008. Uh, since Obama took office, the polls, show, uh, polls abroad show that higher popularity for the U.S., but I don't know about you, my own impression is I don't really know what to make of some of the polls in other countries and how real they are. Uh, if you were watching the news yesterday, the APSA came out of, with a report on exactly this topic. Apparently, the APSA president put together a a group of 20 foreign policy scholars, and the uh, the, uh, AP headline yesterday was political scientists report drop in U.S. standing. Uh, When you read it a little more carefully, uh, the U.S. standing in the world declined in the past decade to below (laughs) Cold War levels. Uh, Of course, the second paragraph goes the opposite direction. Four favorable attitudes have risen sharply under President Barack Obama with his commitment to restore American standing, but confidence in him appears to be in conflict with unfavorable attitudes about US foreign policy. Uh, the APS- American Political Science Association sent a report released Thursday. And I, uh, there's two dissenters, Steve Krasner and Henry New of the George Washington University. The article goes into it in more detail and there's a short and long version on the APSA website today Uh, But there's a uh, table showing our standing abroad in numerous other countries uh, from 2002 to 2009 yearly. Uh, The favorability rating of the U.S., we will all be happy to know, in the United States, is 88%. That's 4% higher than last year. In Canada, we're 68%. It's not clear if that was before or after the APSA meeting in Toronto. (laughs) Uh, we've gone up 16% in Britain, in France from 42% to 75% in one year, Spain 33 to 58 unchanged in Poland, unchanged in Turkey, up 5% in Egypt, it goes all, all around, Lebanon virtually unchanged, um, only 15% in Palestinian territories, um, Kenya 90%. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nigeria went up from 64 to 79 and if you trust the polls in some of these countries you're much more trustful than I So, and I believe in polls uh, in any case we will have a panel on foreign policy and the election uh, tomorrow morning for those of you who were here four years ago that was one of the great uh, panels at any conference uh, and tomorrow morning uh, Gary Jacobson and Calvin Norfolk will be presenting papers and our own inimitable John Mueller will be, be providing commentary and if you're familiar with John's commentary from last time it's well worth any paper he's uh, <laughs> great um, there we go uh, second possible transformational element is certainly race in U.S. politics it wasn't explicitly debated last year uh, but it was inherent in uh, Obama's nomination. It came up most explicitly when Reverend Reverend Jeremiah Wright took the national scene and when Obama finally addressed some race issues in his Philadelphia speech. The polls show that most voters didn't consider race a very important factor, but uh, the media certainly had interviews with some people for whom race was the factor in the election. And elections, after all, are decided on the margin. It really doesn't require 95% or 65% of the public to care about the same issue, but if 4 or 5% of the public are voting on the basis of an issue that can be very powerful. Uh, Obama won, but race certainly is going to keep mattering in American politics. It has for the last 200 years. It's not going to stop. Uh, but Obama election may change how race is treated in politics. But the question still will be how transformational it will be. Uh, This afternoon's panel includes several papers on demographics, including race. Well, I've called that race in politics and voting. Uh, If you've looked at the papers, you'll see they're very general models of the election. Uh, Our most general models, I think, uh, for for today and tomorrow, actually. Uh, Domestic policy generally, uh, the financial meltdown occurred during the fall campaign. The transformation there is certainly unprecedented government intervention in the economy. Owning auto companies, things like that. Uh, healthcare reform was a major issue in the campaign, uh, with people realizing that Medicare was going to have problems sooner rather than later. Uh, we've had some elections that really were transformational: FDR's New Deal election, the Great Society, uh, Reagan's conservative revolution. Um, the question is here: domestic policy will the response to a, a financial meltdown and healthcare reform be transformational? At least we do have a panel on some of these issues that will come up tomorrow afternoon. Party realignment is always a question after every election. Uh, voter turnout was high this election, but not necessarily as high as people were predicting. Uh, but we saw some change in demographics in, in voting and also in party identification. The gender gap that many of us have become familiar with was still there this year. And the marriage gap, was as it usually is, was about twice as high as the gender gap, with married people voting more Republican than non-married people. The black vote obviously was Democratic, but the Hispanic vote moved more Democratic, and Hispanic vote is what I underlined there, uh, because in terms of the larger population, uh, it's really the important demographic as we move in further into the 21st century. <laughs> and then there's the young vote. That amazing two-thirds uh, for Obama. Um, some of us remember the Reagan Revolution and what happened in 1980. And clearly, young people, campuses like this one, young people went overwhelmingly for Reagan. And you could see the blip in voting and party ID figures for really many years thereafter. That that cohort going into the electorate in 1980 was stayed much more Republican than the cohort just before it, or though that just after it. But I haven't looked back at the data, but it wasn't that overwhelmingly a Republican vote, it's just a majority for Reagan. Uh, two-thirds here voting for Obama, that's just an amazing uh, movement by any cohort. And so it would be interesting to trace them through. And of course there was the counter-cyclical one. The one group that moved to be more Republican rather than more Democrat was older people voting more for McCain. I thought that older people, people over 65, were always a more democratic group, and so I was pretty surprised when I saw that in the data. Um, Of course, I did notice that one of the candidates in the debate was much older than the other (laughs) candidate, and that may have something to do with it. Um, But in any case, the other movements that I saw in the data were the Republican support among middle-aged and college-educated people falling. (coughs) If we see realignment, uh, the Hispanic vote, the young vote, um, and perhaps middle-aged and college-educated maybe places. Of course, many of us have seen each election roll around possibility for realignment, and the realignment never quite happening. And so we're gonna have yet to, to watch that again. Gender in American politics, another possible transformation. Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin, very important parts of the campaign story. Um, both Clinton and Palin really changing campaign dynamics quite a bit. Uh, my own view down there is that the uh, significantly uh, really biased coverage of both of them on Saturday Night Live, uh, SNL was great last time in terms of their dealing with all the candidates, uh, but some could view their their treatment both of Hillary and Sarah Palin is unusually strong. Uh, obviously those two candidates were in the end, unsuccessful, but still transformative. Uh, but I'll be curious to see as we go through some of the papers if their impact could be judged on the campaign, and particularly uh, the paper that Sunshine Delegates will be giving tomorrow on thwarted voters will focus pretty directly on this. And I think it also comes up in the Tesler and Sears paper, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and finally, and there is a finally. Uh, Election law and administration is another place where we could have transformation in politics. After 2000, I think some of us expected we could have major changes in election law and administration, and we had some, but recounts are still problematic. I'm from Minnesota, and the only good thing is we finally have two senators from the state, but it was beginning to become a potential national laughingstock as the recount went on. At least it was a very professional Great uh, comparison with another state maybe eight years earlier uh, but it still became very problematic and provisional ballots could become a problem um, and I put down Ohio there uh, this I'm not sure which district we're in here are we in the Kilroy specifically yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah this actual district was one where provisional ballots were a major issue in terms of settling a congressional campaign there's two districts right in the Columbus area and always having lived on the border, I'm never quite sure which one I can vote in. They're both on the voting machines in our precinct. Voting vote. To keep it confusing. I've tried. I've tried. Anyhow, by now more states have early voting. Uh, I keep wondering if some states will move to internet voting, but not yet. When I look at it, I don't see the 2008 election as transformational quite yet for election law administration. Uh, but at some point, I think we will see major transformations. But I certainly wanted to give a pitch here for the, web, for the election law group at the Moritz uh, College of Law, and particularly their website, moritz, dot, moritzlaw.osu.edu. If you haven't been there, they keep track of all the different election law cases that are important throughout the country. And there's a daily blog by Ned Foley and others at the law school, right? Uh, and it's really excellent place to go well, we have papers today and tomorrow on all these possible transformative elements and probably some others. <coughs> uh, I think for any election, we can never judge the transformi- transformative potential until afterwards, looking in retrospect. But I think the potential is certainly there for 2008. And I was going to end by just focusing this again on the uh, sponsors. Thanking again, Rick Herman and the Roshan Center, as well as the College and the Department of Political Science. At this point, I get to turn it over. There's no opening morning announcements, right? Good, good. I get to thank Dino Christensen for our department, we- for the uh, conference website. He came in and is sitting in back, and be will more tomorrow as well. Kurt, you want to start things off? And we do have a uh, table up here if the panelists want to sit up here too.
2: Please, panelists. <laughs> Uh, Good morning. Uh, Those of us who are interested in election law and election administration owe a great debt of gratitude to Florida in 2000 and Ohio in 2004. But, you know, prior to 2000, our election system was just awful. And it's still not great. And the only reason we didn't talk about it before 2000 is we didn't have the unusual situation in the presidential <laughs> campaign of one messed up state determining the outcome of a presidential election. So uh, you know when you, when you actually look back and look at issues of voting systems and poll worker training, all this you know, it's been a mess for a long time. And if someone were trying to estimate, well, how accurate are our elections, you know, some of us were sort of joking. Well, they're accurate within plus or minus 2%, so as long as the margin of victory is beyond 2% or 4% or whatever, then everybody's sort of happy. And, of course, this year, a lot of people were congratulating ourselves, or last year were congratulating ourselves about a-, a wonderfully well-conducted election, Well, that meant there wasn't a Florida or an Ohio, and if there had been an Ohio, it wouldn't have made any difference because the margins were sufficiently great. So... I think it's. I, I think we do owe a debt of thanks to Florida and Ohio because there really are serious issues, and we have here uh, since since the Florida debacle, uh, you know, people getting concerned about a whole variety of things, and some of them were very specific, the methods of voting, punch card voting, and all the frailties there, and we knew about that twenty years before Florida, but we did nothing about it because it never seemed to affect the outcome. Uh, we certainly knew that uh, uh, aspects of the registration systems that we had, and inconsistency across states, uh, were, were, were present. But again, we sort of said, well, it works well enough. You know, it's, you know, we we didn't demand really perfect performance or near perfect from our elections. We demanded it from other things, but not from our elections. Uh, Then as we moved on, we realized, well, now now things are getting a little bit more complicated. And so we really have issues about uh, not simply specific things like ballot layout, but we also have questions about how do you modify registration systems. And then as you move forward, uh, when do people vote? And if they're voting on election day and there are problems, uh, what mechanisms do you put in place, such as provisional voting that Herb mentioned? And then we started really getting to, in fact, you know, the broader issues, which some of the papers reflect about. Well, how do we go about administering elections? I wish my colleague Dick Gunther were here because he'd go into one of his rages, <laughs> which is just wonderful. Ask him about this when he shows up. Uh, you know, we're the only democracy in the world that has such partisan administration. We need a national commission. Da 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 da. And and, uh, and he's right, but it's not going to happen. And uh, <laughs> so. Uh, and then, when the, and then we're also getting into the question of uh, not just simply how do we administer our elections, but how do we adjudicate election disputes. And then I thought that, that was incredibly creative, and you'll hear from that about this. Uh, I think did you use the term in one of your one of the papers about shadow courts? Did you yeah. I think "shadow courts" is a really bad word. Okay, yeah, I mean, now I mean, now we now we've changed it to "amicus courts." Uh, yes, it's much yes, more sure. Yeah, more yeah. friendly. Shat- well, shadow uh, courts sound like a dictatorship. That <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you when you want to get rid of opponents, uh, <laughs> they have a fair trial in
3: the shadow court. Or whatever. to <laughs> yeah, so. so, market this concept a
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, marketing is quite the thing. in the next or whatever, but. Uh, Uh, So what we have here today, then, are are four papers, and then again, Dan can't be here today. Dan, if you want to say a little bit about Dan's papers, I know, uh, again, uh, both Dan and Dan are from the Morris College of Law, and some of us like to tease how wonderful it is that actually law professors actually care about how well the election system uh, actually works, and that that really is major progress, because certainly political scientists uh, have not necessarily created the best system, so we look to uh, to your uh, contributions, but... But we have two papers, and Dan can't be here because of family reasons, that really talk here about adjudication and administration of elections, adjudication of election disputes. Uh, Then we have really two more empirically based hard data papers, uh, uh, the Hearnson et al. paper that really focuses on uh, uh, voter satisfaction with the voting experience. Because one of the things that we do in this country, of course, as Herb was teasing about the polls, obviously in order to know whether the election system is working, we have to know whether voters are satisfied that those two don't necessarily fit together as well as people might think. But, uh, uh, but we have an interesting paper that, that, that tests some interesting ideas. And then we have a paper that really looks at what are the consequences for turnout of different methods or different times of voting, whether it's uh, election day registration and voting on election day, therefore, or same day registration and voting, or whether it's simply early voting. And it's a fascinating paper that makes interesting distinctions among the the, the different systems or whatever. And it's one also that when, when I offer my comments later, I think actually suggests some new lines of research that might actually combine some of this with what campaign practitioners do in terms of how they respond to the opportunities provided by different kinds of voting. So with that, we did not really arrange an order, so why don't we just go from my left to right. Sure. Uh-huh. Absolutely.
3: Uh-huh. Thank you, Herb. Did I get here and here? Okay. Um, well, thanks for um, including a, a law person in, with political science conference. We do want a partner. One of the nice things about having such a great political science department here uh, at Ohio State is the ability to collaborate formally and informally, and we've certainly benefited greatly uh, from that in the, in the law school. Um, so, uh, Herb, you set this up perfectly by saying we, we've eliminated hanging chats. But what we haven't done since 2000 is change the structural and systemic nature of running elections and dealing with problems if they occur. And it's a little bit like a doctor telling you know a, heart, a patient with heart disease, you know you've got a high cholesterol problem. You really have to stop eating high cholesterol food. And the patient says, okay, I'll eliminate butter from my diet but then keeps on eating ice cream and red meat, holiday sauce, et cetera, et cetera. What, you know, the analogy is hanging cats worth the butter. We have got that out of our diet, but we still have ice cream in the form of provisional ballots. We still have red meat in the form of absentee voting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the patient, the election system, has structural conditions that make it susceptible to cardiac arrest, unfortunately, and, and a crisis atmosphere. And so if we think back to 2000, the hanging chaps was the trigger of what was the systemic problem. And the systemic problem was a roller coaster ride of institutional uncertainty as to how that issue would be resolved, ending up in a quite a surprise to most legal observers that the US Supreme Court intervened with this 5-4 decision that many people thought seemed more political than legal and left a lot of people questioning whether this was the right sort of institution uh, to be handling a dispute of this nature. And so um, what we wanted to do at, at our election law at More Arts program is last fall, about a year ago, demonstrate using a hypothetical and actually conduct a simulation to say that even with <coughs> hanging chads being eliminated from the system, you could have a dispute arise that would, in, in essence, replicate all of the structural systemic issues involved in 2000. They haven't disappeared at all. It's just changing from butter being the trigger to ice cream being the trigger of the cardiac arrest. Um, so how did, we, how did we do this? We, we created this hypothetical. And the first thing is, we wanted to show that this could happen in the state other than Florida or Ohio. Pick a state, we picked Colorado why we had seen, and and I think as late as Labor Day, some significant prognosticators, including I think Stu Rothenberg and others, were sort of saying (coughs) Colorado could be the swing state of 2008. It obviously didn't turn out that way, but it was a state that demographically might end up being the pivotal state. So, um, and we picked provisional ballots as a focal point, because after 2004, we saw that this um, provisional ballots would be potentially a trigger for a kind of dispute. We wanted to, there's many different issues that can arise over provisional voting. We'll talk about that more when we get to what happened actually in Ohio in 2008. But just kind of simplify the exercise, just so that you can understand it, we talked about the possibility of severe weather in Denver. People can understand that. And in fact, um, when I, after we, we created this hypothetical and we talked to some real election officials in, Colorado about this, and, and election law litigators in Colorado, people were going, yikes. The whole sweat was breaking out when they just saw how realistic you know this scenario was. Good news obviously didn't happen, but um, um, uh, Denver actually had a different kind of meltdown in 2006 for people who follow the election administration. Their whole polling technology um, city-wide didn't boot up on election day in 2006 for two hours. And estimates were that about 13,000 individuals were turned away from the polls uh, in, uh, in 2006. It obviously didn't affect the presidential race. Um, but uh, So we also knew that Colorado and Denver could be uh, the locus of a, of a concern. We made the concern the possibility of a severe snowstorm uh, that hits the city and the surrounding suburbs uh, in the afternoon of election day snarling rush hour traffic as people uh, leave their jobs and, and some of them want to go to the polls and vote uh, in the in the evening, the late afternoon, early evening. Um, so what we said, hypothetically, we had the uh, local election officials in Denver decide to extend voting hours by two additional hours from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., to accommodate all the people stuck in rush hour traffic on the highway trying to get to their polling places. Uh, Denver officials made that decision, but um, the suburban officials did not. They did not extend um, polling hours. Um, They closed their polls at 7 PM. Um, And so that sets up an equal protection issue uh, obviously not involving hanging chads, but an equal protection issue analogous to Bush versus Gore You'll so remember, the equal protection issue in the Bush versus Gore case was the fact that Palm Beach County was treating dimple chads differently than, you know, a Broward County was. And so, what if Denver treats polling hours differently than the suburban counties? Is it the same? Is it different under equal protection? Now, um, I should tell you that there's a, there is a real state law that w- that's relevant to this. It also, um, as we'll talk about a little bit, gives us echoes of Bush versus Gore. The, the, the actual state statute on the books in Colorado says, and I'm quoting, all polls shall be open continuously from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The polls shall remain open after 7, a, after 7 p.m. until every eligible elector who is at the polling place at or before 7 p.m. has been allowed to vote then here's the key sentence. Any person arriving after 7 p.m. shall not be entitled to vote. Other states have this also. Basically, it means if you get there by closing time, if the lines are still long, you're protected. But you've got to be there by 7 p.m. to vote. If you arrive at 7.01 p.m., you're out of luck. And so what the Denver officials did in our hypothetical was to excuse that. It basically said if you arrive between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., you're still okay. You get to vote. It looked like the Denver um, officials were acting in contravention to the state statute, whereas the suburban officials were following, uh, were following the law. Um, now, what made this hypothetical so chilling to people in Colorado was, look, in 2008, we knew who the relevant officials were if this kind of scenario would arise. The Denver officials were all Democrats. The people who controlled the decision about what to do about polling in in Denver. The mayor and, and the local board of elections were all Democratic appointees. So you could see them. Hey, you know, it might help Obama if we kept the polls open an extra two hours. Um, the Secretary of State, statewide official, was an elected Republican official, would might not like this. Um, the state Supreme Court was controlled um, by the Democratic majority. There were five Democratic appointees to the state Supreme Court, two Republican appointees. Uh, the governor and the legislature happened to be controlled uh, by the Democrats. That's a little bit different from the Florida situation if you're kind of comparing how, how this might, might happen. So what our hypothetical did was um, we, we had basically the Secretary of State take the issue to the state Supreme Court. Um, to oppose the counting of the ballots. By the way, I should add, there is a federal law that requires, um, this is part of the Help America Vote Act, it's a provision that's not as well known as some other provisions of HAVA, but HAVA requires that any ballot cast pursuant to an extension of polling hours of the kind that the Denver officials hypothetically did, those must be provisional. On, by federal law, for the reason that if there is a dispute about the validity of extending the ballots, you can then you know, sequester them and decide should they be counted or not so they don't get commingled. So, our scenario was predicated on the assumption that that federal law would be uh, followed, and so that there would be this um, pile of 60,000, we said hypothetically, 60,000 provisional ballots of all these late voters who were snowing in the snowstorm from Denver that might be outcome-determinative for Colorado, which therefore might be outcome-determinative for the Electoral College. Um, And uh, and so the the litigation went forward under the the assumption, what's going to happen to these um, 60,000 provisional ballots? They're sitting there. If they're counted, they might help Obama. But McCain is ahead by about 10,000 votes if they're not counted. So Secretary of State says don't count them. Denver officials want to count them. It goes to the um, state Supreme Court, and we hypothesize a 4-3 ruling uh, to count the provisional ballots analogous to the 4-3 ruling from the Florida Supreme Court over the hanging chads. And then that tees up a petition to the US Supreme Court raising the exact (laughs) comparable issues to what we saw in Bush versus Gore, without the hanging chaps. We've, we've got an equal protection issue, just like Bush versus Gore itself. Denver does something different from the suburbs. Palm Beach did something different from Broward. Um, we've got a more technical issue involving Article II of the U.S. Constitution, which if you remember from Bush versus Gore, one of the issues in that case that um, a concurrent opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist relied on was the fact that Article II of the Constitution designates the state legislature as the constitutional authoritative body to figure out how to appoint presidential electors. The argument in Florida was that the Florida Supreme Court's interpretation of state law over how to deal with chads was such a stretch of the language of the state statute that it, it, it went beyond the stretching point to the breaking point and basically deprived the legislature of its authority under Article II to, t- to specify how to appoint presidential electors. Well, come back to our Colorado language that says, any person arriving after 7 p.m. shall not be entitled to vote. If the Colorado Supreme Court 4 to 3 says, well, you know what? It says that, but this was a really bad snowstorm. And you know, we actually have, and this is true, there's another provision of Colorado law which says, the Colorado statute shall be construed liberally to protect the right of vote. That's that's the very first provision of the entire Colorado election code. So, uh, uh, you know, it's a plausible, it might not be incorrect, but a plausible judicial opinion could say, well, you know, there's an implied exception for extreme emergencies, and we we're allowed to do that based on this overarching principle of be liberal in your construction to protect the right of vote. Strict constructionists like a Scalia would say, no, 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 can't do it. But liberal constructionists like a Brannon or a Justice Breyer would say, no problem, right? So, um, so again, different issue from Hank Jeff, but analogous to the Article II issue that was in Bush versus Gore itself. So what we did, and I'll come back to the decision in a minute, is you know we had, we, we basically, um, found three judges to adjudicate this hypothetical dispute. Three retired judges. We had um, very distinguished lawyers from Washington, D.C. argue the case. The former Solicitor General of the United States, Walter Dallinger, argued the, in, on behalf of the Obama position to count the ballots. We had a guy named Glenn Lager from the Jones Day Law firm, who would have been an Assistant Solicitor General of the United States, argue for the McCain position. Don't count the ballots. And we, had, we actually held open court at Georgetown Law School in front of an audience of about 100 people or so um, NPR covered it, it was kind of fun and, uh, and then we had an, a written decision of the three judge panel, which I'll get to in a, in a minute, but what I want to talk about because I think it's most important for our purposes, is to understand just how scary the hypothetical was in comparison to the reality of what actually occurred uh, in November 2008 now we, we conducted this exercise in October again, to kind of see, you know, to simulate what might happen and thank goodness, nothing affected the presidential election. But there were weather-related extensions of polling hours in the 2008 election. This is what gave us the idea for the particular hypothetical. During the primaries, both here in Ohio, up in Cuyahoga County, and statewide in Maryland, there was, ex- you know, there were last-minute, end-of-the-afternoon extensions of polling hours because of severe weather situations. Maryland, as you remember, the Potomac primary, right? On, on the same day, Virginia was holding a primary. Maryland was holding a primary. They were hit with the same severe storm. Maryland decided to extend their polling hours. Virginia decided not to. Um, that wouldn't create an equal protection issue because equal protection only applies within the state. But it shows you how different jurisdictions can correspond to the same events on the ground differently, uh, you know, leading to arguable inequity among similar voters. Um, we knew preparing for November 2008 that the Obama lawyers and probably the McCain lawyers as well um, I mean we didn't have inside connections with them but Obama had been the one to file the lawsuit to extend the polling hours in Coyote County so we anticipated that if things had been close there would have been litigation to try to extend polling hours um, by one campaign or the other. Uh, In fact there were kind of Preliminary lawsuits filed in Pennsylvania and Virginia in the week before the election day in anticipation of needing to extend the polling hours because people were worried uh, about the, whether there were enough voting machines given the potential anticipated turnout in Pennsylvania and Virginia. Those states were not early voting states. They were not no excuse absentee voting states. And so the, the thought was they might get flooded with, with lots and lots of voters the way Ohio in 2004 was. And so there was... Um, litigation. Now, this obviously all disappeared once um, uh, the victory, the margin of victory was outside the margin of litigation. Presidential race was, to use the, the, the terminology. Of course, it's been referenced, um, we had equal protection litigation of the kind that we saw in Bush versus Gore in Minnesota over the Senate race. Right. The issue there, which took eight months to resolve, was um, absentee risk. Virtually identical absentee ballots were treated differently in one county of Minnesota compared to another county in Minnesota. Um, technical details having to do with whether um, the addresses on the absentee ballot envelope were, were fulfilled properly and other technical issues that we could, we could discuss, but it was the same um, equal protection issue. And then, um, again, as we were talking a little bit ago, here in Ohio, um, we had litigation over provisional ballots that affected a congressional race, the Ohio 15th congressional district, um, but uh, but di- you know did not obviously affect the presidential race. Had it affected, the- had either one of these affected the presidential race, we would have been uh, would have been in trouble. Um, the-, the provisional ballot issue in Ohio wasn't weather related. It was. It looked actually more like what happened in Minnesota. In Ohio, the issue was there were about a thousand ballots that were not properly filled out by the provisional voters. The, the address was wrong, or the, the name was put in the wrong place, or it was missing a signature. And what what got litigated was um, what had happened here in Franklin County, where we are. Um, the computer had incorrectly flagged a lot of voters Uh, and and put in a code next to their name in the poll book saying that they should vote provisionally. And that was an erroneous technical error. And this was discovered during election day. It was discovered, you know, kind of, I think by 10 or 11 a.m. on on election morning. But by then, a lot of people had gone to the polls starting at 7, 8 in the morning and had already been flagged and told to vote provisionally. So the order got rescinded, but not soon enough um, and it affected a bunch of people. Um, So Um, Again, like Minnesota or like Colorado, Ohio had what looked like a pretty strict law. It said if you don't fill out the provisional ballot envelope properly, your provisional ballot can't count. Kilroy, the Democratic candidate, wanted them counted because she was nervous that she might need them in order to win. And Secretary of State Bruner, happens to be a Democrat, you draw your own conclusions, um, also thought that those ballots should be counted. And the theory, one of the theories was... This group of voters shouldn't have been forced to vote provisionally in the first place because of that technical error. Um, had the system worked properly, they would have voted a regular ballot, not been required to fill out this additional form. Their signature was already properly entered into the poll book, where because every voter who votes signs the poll book. So their signature was on file. These voters had checked out as legitimate registered voters. Again, it was a mistake to ask them to vote provisionally. So they were valid voters they did everything in the ordinary voter. did. They just filled out the extra form that they shouldn't have had to do um, anyway. They filled that extra form out improperly. So Brunner says, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't hold them to that superfluous mistake. Republican-dominated Supreme, Ohio Supreme Court, says, uh, no. The law strictly says, if, you, if a voter votes provisionally, as these ones did, they have to fill out the form correctly for their ballot to count. We had... Federal judges appointed, happened to be appointed by Democratic presidents um, uh, rule in favor of Bruner's position. And there was ended up being a tug-of-war between the federal courts and the, and, and, and the Ohio courts um, on, how to, on how to resolve that. Um, the outcome was um, those ballots were not counted after the, uh, the, the state court ruling, and it turned out they were not necessary for Kilroy in the end. And it, wasn't, it, didn't, it was not necessary to trigger the recount um, threshold. Had those ballots been um, necessary to trigger the recount threshold, they would have gone back to federal court to fight some more. Um, and this gives us an indication of just how important the dates of these kinds of disputes are in relationship to the presidential campaign. This should really scare everybody in this room. unfortunately. know. And if you can figure out a way to interest Congress in this issue... Please come talk to me, because Congress, as far as I can tell, has no interest in affecting the calendar. They w- Congress wants to change our voter registration laws. Fine, that would be good. Cong- Congress may want to change our absentee ballot laws. Fine, that may be good. Congress so far doesn't seem interested in, f- in changing the calendar, but it's the calendar that creates it, that in part creates a disaster. Because Florida proved, Minnesota proved, Ohio proved, and Washington state in 2004, involving a gubernatorial election, proved you can't figure out who wins a presidential race, according to the congressional calendar, um, when that race is close, and when any one of these issues, be it butter or ice cream or red meat, is thrown to the lawyers to litigate over. If you know, So let's focus for a second here on Minnesota. The date the electoral college met in 2008, in every state of the union, was Monday, December 15th. If we think about where Minnesota was in its schedule, it was the next day that the state canvassing board met to review ballots that had been handled during the um, statewide manual recount process at the local level, but that had been challenged by one of the two campaigns and submitted to the state canvassing board for its final determination. So in a sense, Minnesota was just beginning one important phase of the process, not even the process having to do with with absentee ballots, because absentee ballots were outside the scope of the hand recount, because they hadn't been counted, because they had been rejected, because they weren't filled out properly. Um, So Minnesota wasn't ready to figure out who had won its Senate race on the date that the, we needed to know under I mean, the congressional calendar who, who won the presidency. You could either say Minnesota couldn't give Congress an answer had it been a presidential election, or its answer would have been Coleman, because Coleman was the candidate that was ahead after the initial canvas. What Minnesota, the way Minnesota worked was that two weeks after Election Day, they certified the canvas that triggered the recount because the canvas was close enough it was within you know was within less than um, half a percent or whatever the, the, the trigger was um, and that's and so November 18th was the date that the Minnesota system started recounting ballots and then delivered the ballots to the state canvassing board on uh, December 16th. Ohio was behind Minnesota in this schedule in 2008 because the litigation over provisional ballots was preliminary <laughs> to figuring out whether you needed a recount or not in the first place. Minnesota doesn't have provisional ballots because they have election day registration. So they were able to skip that stage of the process and still be this far behind the congressional calendar. Ohio hadn't even started right off. Um, Minnesota triggers its recount on November 18th. Ohio doesn't trigger its recount until December 15th to figure out whether it needs a recount or not until December fifth, three weeks later. Why? Because they're fighting over these a thousand provisional ballots that they don't know whether they're they, they're eligible or not. So Ohio is three weeks behind. Um, you know and, and obviously if, if you think about the absentee ballot issue, that doesn't get resolved in Minnesota. I mean it depends on how you think about it. There's no certification of a winner until January then it goes to court. The court rules in March. goes on appeal. The appeals court rules in June. Same thing in Washington State in 2004. We don't get a winner of the Chris, the, the governor's race there until June, finally. Um, the date the Electoral College met in, in 2004, the candidate that was ahead in Washington was the Republican Rossi, even though Gregoire ultimately prevails later on. So our calendar is a disaster. We can talk about historically why that's true, but you all should be Scared about this. It means we can't figure this out in 2012 or 2016 or whenever the next time uh, next time happens. Uh, the other issue, um, and this is actually uh, where I'm separating a little bit into what Dan Takati will be talking about, because the, um, the focus of uh, Dan's paper is that um, election administration reform should start to think about institutions as opposed to rules. And our experiment that we did over the Colorado um, uh, hypothetical was designed to test that. And so let me tell you just a little bit briefly about the panel that we created and how it resolved and how it relates to what happened in Minnesota. We wanted to try to create an impartial panel that um, could do a better job, be less ugly than the five 4 split in, in Bush versus Gore. How would you do that? So we said, well, how could you create a, a, a panel that is that is neutral? So we had we needed to have one Democrat judge who was recognized as a Democrat, another judge who was recognized as a Republican, and then somebody be a neutral. So we picked a prominent uh, federal appeals court judge named Patricia Wall, who had been chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. who was a Carter appointee and known to be a quite liberal Democrat. We had Tom Phillips, who had been the chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court, who was, a, who was elected as a Republican and was a protege of Jim Baker and you know was, had retired and was at the Baker Law Firm. Two retired judges, they were our Democrat-Republican anchors. They picked a guy named David Levy, who had been a former federal judge and who was serving as the dean of the Duke Law School, as the neutral. He was the son of Attorney General uh, Edward Levy, by the way. They, in our, in our experiment, I told you, we actually had a real um, you know uh, court proceeding, if you will, over the hypothetical. They issued an opinion, turned out unanimous in favor of Obama. It was issued prior to election day, so we didn't know who really had won the election yet. And they rejected the equal protection claim. They rejected the, um, the Article 2 claim. And if you read that opinion, it's in your materials. It looks, its legal analysis is quite similar to the unanimous three-judge opinion in Minnesota that rejects the equal protection claim over the absentee ballots in Minnesota. Coincidence? Maybe. You know, The lesson that, that I think we can learn from this is that there's a virtue to these special-purpose panels. Um, Minnesota had a different mechanism to getting their three neutral judges. Um, they didn't have this... Selection mechanism. We had they They picked one Democrat, one Republican, and one independent who was the Jesse Ventura appointee. Um, but we had two different three judge panels kind of selected just for the purpose of this one election case. My conjecture is that those special purpose panels are on best behavior. Because they don't know each other very well. They're come they come together just for the purpose of this case. In Minnesota, it was three judges from all different parts of the state. They they never sat together. State Supreme Courts, whether it's Colorado or Florida or what have you, particularly if they're ideologically polarized and politically polarized, they're predisposed to fight. They're ingrained, they fight all the time. They fight over criminal procedure, they fight over abortion rights, they you name it, they fight, right? Think about the Michigan Supreme Court, which is a disaster. They just fight, fight, fight. So they get a hot button election case. They're, you know, they're loaded for bear to fight about it and divide ideologically, divide politically in a partisan way. You get three judges who haven't worked together before. They know they're structured to be neutral. They're, they're um, you know, they're primed to try to be on best behavior. Maybe they actually will perform on best behavior, even if they split two to one the split will end up seeming more fair more impartial than um, than, uh, than the you know the kind of arbitrary part perhaps partisan a uh, 5-4 split of the US Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore or the 4-3 partisan split of the Florida Supreme Court uh, that led to Bush versus Gore so i am going to i know i need to be quick and wrap up um, so if if you think about institutional reform to try to avoid the potential train wreck in the future over presidential election. The, the, the train wreck that we escaped in 2004 in Ohio, that we escaped so far. We have learned the wrong lesson historically from 1877, pace till. well The standard history lesson from 1877 is that the commission that was created back then was a disaster and couldn't handle the dispute because it split eight To seven in a partisan vote, Um, but that was the wrong lesson. I think, if you recall, you you know, you probably don't study this the way I I do, but that was a 15-member commission. It had five members of the Senate, sitting senators; five members of the House of Representatives, (coughs) sitting congressmen. Already, they're political animals, right? They're not predisposed to be judicial and impartial. They're predisposed to be partisan. They had five Supreme Court justices on that commission, but they picked two to be Republican, two to be Democrats, and they had one who was supposed to be neutral. But already there, you've got a 15-member body set up with 14 partisans, seven Democratic partisans, seven Republican partisans, this lone individual in a 15-member body who's supposed to uphold neutrality. It's a hard position to be in. And it turned out that the person that they picked for that job said, no, thank you, I won't serve. And they didn't have a backup replacement. Um, So they were stuck with finding an extra Republican to be the 15th member. What happened? The extra Republican votes with the Republicans and gives the election to Hayes. So the lesson, I think, on that point is the idea of trying to find a neutral tribunal is not inherently bad. It's just a particular way in which they tried to find a neutral tribunal in 1877 was wrong. Pick a smaller body, not 15 members, and make sure you've got backup mechanisms structured a little bit differently. Don't have political animals, members of Congress, being part of the body, just judges. I have an idea uh, for how that could be implemented, if we could get some reform uh, on the agenda. in light of what happened in Minnesota this year, in light of the experiment that we run, but I don't want to take up any more time at this point in QA or in discussion. We can talk about the details of that sort of institutional reform if you're enamored with the idea of coming up with a better dispute resolution mechanism. Thank you very much.
2: And now it's I'm sorry, I did forget to introduce the department. <laughs>
4: I started out by introducing this as the Hernson et al. paper, and that's fine, you'll see I have uh, two co-authors here, and uh, in this case I think uh, my co-authors uh, did, shall I say, at least as much work, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm lucky to be brought in along with them on this paper, but I'm here, so uh, today mm-hmm. they're not, so I'm presenting it, uh, but I'm going to uh, do something a bit different. And I don't know whether my, I haven't even told my co-authors, I don't know whether uh, they would appreciate this or not. I think Kelly in particular, who pushed one point that I'll mention later, uh, might feel uh, a little funny about this. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to present our background, uh, the research question, the expectations, the data, all in just perfectly conventional order as if I were at the APSA convention, something of that sort. But then I'm going to leap forward. Uh, and talk about briefly about what's usually at the end. It's going to be some multivariate uh, stuff, the kinds of things uh, you'd see at an APSA conference, uh, several multivariate models, Uh, and then I'm going to go back to what normally would come in earlier and talk about some simpler results, but uh, in some ways, uh, possibly more significant results. Uh, Some results that uh, fit in very nicely, I think, with what what Herb talked about, with what Ned talked about, Uh, And and, uh, I'll try to make reference to that uh, as I I go along. So uh, I hope this will lead to some some discussion uh, more than we typically get at uh, 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 typical conferences, because that's part of the purpose of a gathering like this. So the background in conventional order. Uh, The background was that uh, there was concern about just how well the presidential election would be run. Uh, I put up a few things here, uh, changes in voting machines in various places in the country, Uh, concern about whether people could handle this, Uh, would they uh, be able to vote on the, particularly uh, where they had uh, new uh, equipment, um, uh, electronic equipment, would uh, individuals, perhaps especially uh, older individuals, I can include myself among that now, would we be able to handle uh, the the new kinds of of equipment? Uh, There were changes in election administration, including registration rules, uh, there was early voting and so on. I don't have to go into any of these in detail, partly because I think you all know about them. Uh, Ned pointed out some, some particular problems, uh, mentioned uh, the, what, the 13,000 voters, uh, where was that, in Colorado that were, were turned away, I guess, uh, and problems uh, potential problems in Pennsylvania, problems that occurred in Ohio and, and so on. Uh, the expectation that uh, turnout would be very high uh, so that uh, places might be inundated with, with lots of people who wanted to vote and and they weren't prepared, to possibly uh, uh, jurisdictions weren't prepared for that, uh, and then the shortcomings of previous elections. So that uh, it's not all that far yet from 2000, uh, people still had on their minds the kind and, and have now have on their minds the kinds of things that could happen would uh, <laughs> really be uh, uh, well disastrous is probably not too strong word. Uh, so our research question here was uh, how satisfied were the voters with the election process? Um, and, uh, and then what contributes to various levels of satisfaction? If we go out and obviously ask ordinary individuals, we're talking about uh, doing a, a nationwide poll, uh, did, were people satisfied or not? Uh, and uh, were different kinds of people perhaps more or less satisfied? Uh, we considered uh, demographics certainly that always comes up, uh, race among them. Uh, pre-election expectations. Here's where Kelly and per- Kelly Patterson, in particular, uh, developed ideas about uh, that, that come from consumer researchers uh, about, elect- about expectations being important. In this case, uh, pre-election expectations about the election possibly being important in the way people reacted to the election. Uh, And then uh, we considered various aspects of the voting experience itself, the voting technology, how did people react to uh, whatever technology was used, uh, poll workers about whom a lot had been said, and so on. Our expectations, or theory if you'd like to call it that, uh, were that uh, pre-election expectations uh, about the voting experience affect the election day experiences. Uh, just as as, uh, expectations in other circumstances affect uh, how people uh, evaluate their uh, experiences. Uh, We thought that the election day experiences in turn would affect the overall satisfaction that people had uh, with uh, the voting experience. And we uh, considered specifically, uh, asked about things like long lines, new machines, uh, problems in simply locating a polling location, uh, the poll workers, and so on, Uh, And then we uh, thought that both (laughs) pre-election expectations and election day experiences would affect the overall satisfaction that people had with the voting process. The data uh, was from a 2008, uh, many of you know, cooperative congressional election study, uh, a large large nationally representative uh, sample, at least said to be nationally representative, Uh, an internet survey, uh, a a panel design, so we could measure expectations prior to the election, and then we could compare the evaluations uh, of the actual experience that people had in a post-election interview. Um, uh, This this is not the the right place to go into any sort of extensive uh, discussion of uh, whether an internet survey is a good survey, uh, and, and all of the things that we could talk about with respect to that. Uh, I simply here call attention to the fact that that's what it was, and uh, I myself have written last year uh, for a paper at APSA uh, something about uh, questioning about uh, the the, uh, representative character uh, for certain kinds of things and certain kinds of populations, at least, uh, of uh, Internet surveys uh, done the way polymetrics and others uh, do them. But uh, uh, anyway, I just want to call that to your attention that this is what we use. Okay, now I'd like to go to the end. And uh, so here, here's what we ended up with uh, in uh, uh, sort of conventional uh, political science style. We had three models. Uh, we had uh, independent uh, variables on the left side here as predictors of the dependent variable on the right-hand side. So first of all, uh, looking at... Let's see if we get rid of that. Oh.
3: I'm afraid something like that
4: might happen. Let's let's see if we can just, aha. Um, Demographic variables as predictors of pre-election expectations. Uh, Then we had an equation which we had demographic variables plus the pre-election expectations as predictors of election day experiences. Uh, And then the third model, demographic variables and the pre-election (laughs) expectations and the specific election day experiences as predictors of the overall evaluation of uh, the, the election, how satisfied people were. Uh, what do these models show? I'm going to show you some uh, uh, particular uh, regression results in a moment, but I can't get everything on one slide, uh, at least if you're going to see anything. Uh, so in general, what do these show? Uh, they show that some demographics do matter. You see that older voters, the one that's most consistent uh, is that older voters had higher expectations, Uh, and were generally more satisfied. Uh, uh, The results show that pre-election expectations do matter for the election day experiences and both the pre-election expectations and the specific uh, election day experiences matter for people's judgments about overall satisfaction. Okay, let me show you uh, three tables like this. Uh, Here's the the impact of demographics on pre-election expectations. Uh, here, quite a few things were uh, significant, uh, certainly race and, and ethnicity, the, the first two <coughs> coefficients uh, were significant uh, African American, very close to the, oh no, it's below, that's below the .05, well below. Um, the uh, uh, age, uh, a positive coefficient, people were more satisfied, uh, education, more highly educated, were more satisfied, uh, gender being marginally, very marginally significant. Uh, I just note here, I'm not going to, to say a great deal about it. Uh, the uh, expectations here were a five-item scale, uh, you can see the scores ranged from 7 to 35. Actually I think we've got to do some more work with that. Uh, certainly the scores uh, didn't uh, form anything like a, a rectangular or even a normal distribution over that whole range that were concentrated. Uh, much more so toward the top end, although there were individuals uh, that that had a score as low as 7 and some a a score as high as 35. Um, At at any rate, uh, these are the results. uh, If you look at at, uh, the magnitude of the effects, I think they're they're large enough to to, uh, be concerned about or to to write home about, as you might say, uh, as well as uh, uh, some of them being significant. Uh, Here's uh, the the second table. This is uh, the the model about showing the effect of both demographics and pre-election expectations on the election day experiences. I didn't uh, have room, I guess, to put down the bottom of the scale, but the election day experiences is, again, a uh, fairly uh, wide uh, scale uh, created by uh, a number of uh, specific experiences. Um, the same thing applies that they, they don't uh, mostly they do range over people do range over the entire scale but they tend to be uh, clustered near the top or at top end uh, and that's something I think we do have to, to work some more on uh, here uh, much less was significant uh, uh, race was not and ethnicity were not significant at all. Uh, hard to know what to do with that one uh, coefficient. And the only one in the model, case of the model where is where Republicans uh, reacted differently from, uh, from Democrats and Independents. Age consistently here as well as elsewhere made a difference, uh, with uh, older people uh, saying they had uh, a better uh, experience, experiences on Election Day. Uh, the coefficient is pretty small, but you've got a, a wide range of, of age. Uh, so that, uh, in effect, uh, at the extremes at least, can make a fair amount of difference comparable, you might say, to uh, the the, uh, uh, ethnicity coefficient and so on. Um, And then I I won't, oh, and the the bottom line, literally the bottom line of this figure is the expectations. The the pre-election expectations uh, are clearly significant, and again, one can can look at the the actual amount of uh, change that uh, they imply for election day experiences. Uh, and uh, they're, they're reasonable, I think. I'm not going to say I'll say something at the very end, but uh, right now you might just note that we have uh, ballot type and ballot length in here near the bottom, uh, and they're not significant. I'll, I'll come back to that uh, later. And here's the last of the uh, multivariate equations. Uh, it shows the impact of demographics, of pre-election expectations, and election day experiences on a single item that uh, judge the over- in which uh four-item response to a question about uh, one's overall experience at the polls. Uh, I, I think again with a four-item response we've got to think about uh, some other methods possibly. This was simply OLS, um, but uh, it's a, a certainly a, a, an adequate place to start at least, I think. Uh, and here uh, uh, certainly age again is, is significant. Uh, the racial and, and ethnic variables come pretty close. Uh, and uh, uh, perhaps most importantly from, from our particular uh, interest in this, the expectations, the pre-election expectations continue to matter uh, just as the actual experiences that people had, say they had on election day, matter. So the, these are the, the, uh, the most political science findings, you might say, the, the, uh, the ultimate results. But now I want to go back to some simple results that uh, I put significant with a question mark that may be in some ways uh, the most uh, important finding from my point of view. I don't, Again, I'll, I'll have to ask my co-authors what they think of this. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think these were the things that stood out for me. Uh, the first thing was that in general we found high satisfaction with past voting experiences. Again, it's hard to get everything on one screen. I'm going to go back and uh, forth uh, here a little bit. Just If you look at the leftmost column here, past experience, mostly positive, about three quarters uh, strongly or, or uh, agreeing very strongly or strongly uh, that they, their past experience uh, was good uh, on a seven point scale. So in general we, we found high satisfaction when, asked, when people were asked about their past voting experiences. I don't know whether, uh, I, frankly I'm not entirely sure how to evaluate that. Um, I don't know that that's been asked before Um, I suppose you could say there's no particular reason to think that a lot of people would be dissatisfied. On the other hand, put in the context of of, uh, the election problems that were possible election problems were anticipated. Uh, The things I referred to earlier, the kinds of potential problems that Ned referred to, Herb used the word transformational before uh, in talking about administration. Well, there was the potential, at least, for this election to be transformational with respect to election administration. Uh, with all that background, uh, finding that uh, the three-quarters uh, were in the top couple of categories on a seven-point scale and asked about uh, their, their past voting experience uh, may be significant, may be meaningful, that uh, that many were, were satisfied. Expectations were also high. Uh, There were some changes that people expected. Uh, I'll show you these things in a minute uh, again. Uh, And there were a few problems expected when we asked about specifics as well. Could you find your polling place? Did you expect to have problems with the voting process? So again, back to to this figure, Uh, I mentioned the past uh, experience. The others, uh, did you expect to have a satisfactory voting experience? Uh, Show identification, that's more a question of of, uh, it's a little bit different uh, because it doesn't necessarily mean you'd be satisfied or dissatisfied. Uh, could you find a polling <coughs> place, easily complete the voting process on your own? Yes, yes. Use voting equipment without aid. Again, now for, for these last three, you're up over 80% saying they strongly agree, or very strongly agree, or strongly agree uh, that uh, they'll be able to do all of these things uh, satisfactorily. So expectations, uh, as, as well as past experience, I think were... Uh, Looked at more favorably than we might think if we uh, think about the the problems that potentially could occur. There were some concerns. Uh, About a quarter of the people said they would have to wait in line for 15 to 30 minutes or more. Uh, Frankly, on this question, I wish we had differentiated more uh, about the time people had to wait. Waiting 15 minutes. Uh, especially if, if this 25% of these people mostly thinking they have to perhaps wait 15 minutes doesn't seem to me so bad um, uh, I know I, I almost never have to wait more than about 2 minutes uh, so it's hard for me to relate to, the, to exactly how people would feel if they have to wait 15 minutes 30 minutes uh, to wait in line seems to me to start, uh, start to get uh, pretty annoying uh, and uh, <coughs> this, is, uh, this is one of the categories and so uh, I had to go with this So uh, a fair chunk of people said that they would have to wait in in line. So there was some concern. The one that surprised me mostly was that that half expressed some concern about the privacy of their vote. And I was interested to to see at APSA that there was uh, another paper on the panel that I was at. Uh, The the point of that paper was that uh, a number of people, quite a number of people, uh, I forgot the details of their paper, but uh, uh, we can look it up uh, at some point, uh, that uh, so many people were concerned about whether the vote really was private or not. And, and I don't know that I had ever particularly thought of that, except I suppose when uh, a few years ago when I was doing the experimental work that led to the book that Paul and, and Mike Hammer and others I, I wrote, that that was my first encounter with uh, voting machines, if you want to call them that, uh, the part I'm thinking of. Uh, Other than these these big uh, 800-pound gorillas that we have and still have in New York State, the the lever voting machines, uh, where you go in and you have a curtain around you and and no one's going to see how you vote uh, unless they are Superman, perhaps. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I, I, when we were doing these experiments, uh, one of the, the kinds of voting systems, uh, uh, a uh, op-scan system, well, an op-scan system starts with filling out a piece of paper, filling out the ballot, which is the, the uh, is, is a piece of stiff paper, and I think pretty uniformly, uh, from, I, I've made a point of looking when anything's on TV about uh, reports of, of voting systems, and now, of course, they'll have, uh, they'll show people actually doing it while the, uh, person reporting the story is talking uh, so I, I observed it there uh, constantly and so on and what you have are these uh, really flimsy and not well secured I think plastic uh, uh, stands uh, they're they're made very nicely so that you probably never thought of these things I didn't until we got into this but there are things that tables that fold up very nicely that's one of their virtues is that they're about I don't know about that high the legs are made so they fold up and they fold into the the top of the the table uh, and then the, the the shields, the privacy shields, uh, take come out. They're here in the front and here, and they come out and uh, you can put them down. You've got a package that big and it's very light. Uh, it, it doesn't provide much privacy to me. There's no back, unlike in New York where we have that curtain. So if I'm here and someone else is right here uh, and walking, walking. Uh, not someone not standing going like this, but even someone just standing and walking to to the the uh, stand next uh, next to mine, it seems to me could fairly easily uh, see how I voted if they if they really wanted to, or even if they didn't want to, perhaps they might just inadvertently know it. So uh, putting that together with the response in the survey uh, about uh, people uh, thinking that there might be some concern about the privacy of their vote struck me. As, as pretty interesting and potentially very important, uh, and uh, as I think about the possibility of doing further studies, we might go into this in more detail because we really don't have much more than I'm I'm reporting here that there was some concern about that. Uh, there was was considerable concern as well about the fairness of the election outcome. Uh, this uh, I think was uh, surprised me and was was interesting. Seven point scale again. Now the the, the biggest. Set of people, of course, uh, not of course. I suppose the, the biggest set of people, as you look at this, did strongly agree, uh, and others uh, were, were six and so on. That uh, the uh, uh, the current election process would produce fair results, but and for example, five, six, and seven, and you're just up to about a majority, just a bare majority, uh, saying that they uh, that they agree. Uh, that the uh, election outcome would produce uh, fair results, a fair process would uh, produce fair outcomes. And you've got uh, a pretty good, pretty large set of people uh, on the other side, certainly neutral, and on the other side uh, thinking that maybe this is uh, somewhat uncertain about whether the uh, outcome is really going to be fair. Okay, Uh, expectations did vary systematically. Uh, Blacks and Hispanics rated past experiences less positively. Uh, They figured they'd have to wait longer in line. They less often thought their votes would be confidential. Uh, But interestingly uh, and puzzlingly, uh, well, puzzlingly perhaps, they they more often expected the outcome to be fair. And I think that this may uh, well be, uh, (coughs) uh, this last part may well be a function of partisanship uh, and the the outcome that was uh, expected. Um, so here, here's just a table to show some of these differences. Uh, past experience, positive. You can see it, uh, whites uh, much more than, uh, quite a bit more than African Americans, Hispanics expecting to wait. Uh, African Americans, Hispanics expected to wait longer. The vote is confidential. Here's a big, I think, a quite uh, big difference. Uh, this is a, a different question to what I, uh, the privacy one I referred to a moment ago. Uh, but so here we have a 10point scale the very top uh, top two categories. Um, uh, over half of the, the whites said yes, uh, but about a third of African Americans and Hispanics. So, so a pretty big uh, difference there. Uh, and then expecting the, the outcome to be fair, a reverse of what I would have expected just in the abstract and it may well have to do as I said with, with partisan uh, actual experiences also were relate, re, re, uh, rated higher than ex- they were. Excuse me, they were rated higher than expectations, and I think higher than I probably would have, have thought going into it. Uh, a large majority of people were satisfied with the overall experience. Uh, agreements on specifics was high. I'll show you that in just a moment. Uh, and there, was, there was lower expectations on several things. Uh, here are these these results. Uh, finding the, the polling place no problem, uh, polling place conveniently located, uh, these are all again a percentage very strongly or strongly agreeing with these things uh, voting system was easy to use uh, despite the fact that in some instances it was new to people um, I suppose one thing to say from that is for a lot of people it was the same thing certainly for those of us in New York where the legislature couldn't get its act together about that uh, and if you follow New York politics at all they can't get their act together about anything <laughs> um, but it uh, is so, so our systems hadn't changed even though they were supposed to have changed, according to Hava. Uh, and, but no technical difficulties while voting. 90% said, yeah, yeah, strongly agreed, agreed. Uh, now the, the, the ones where there was a little less agreement, the format of the ballot was easy to follow. Well, we still have a lot of people saying yes, uh, but the percentage in those high categories has gone down a little bit. Uh, this is something that's uh, interesting to me. Uh, but then I'll uh, wait till I get to the, the very last slide as well. That may say something about this. Again, cast my vote in privacy. Uh, it was high, but it's, but it's not overwhelming. Uh, and uh something that might be explored. And then the poll workers, and there's been a lot of uh, discussion of poll workers. Uh, and so they, uh, at least on the questions that, <coughs> that we asked here, they got the worst uh, rap. So conclusions. Well, demographics, pre-election expectations, and election day experiences all affected uh, the overall levels of voter satisfaction. Expectations about the election were high. There were some concerns about privacy and about uh, the expected fairness of the outcome. Uh, Satisfaction with the election process was also high, despite these very big uh, pre-election concerns. Uh, And it was true for overall judgments and for specific aspects of the election. And then finally, uh, going back to uh, some coefficients I mentioned, there appear to be no effects of the voting system used or the kind of and length of uh, ballots used. I know this was to draw on my co-authors again. This was particularly disappointing to Paul because uh, Paul was the one who particularly wanted us to and and helped us go through a, a pretty laborious process of finding out for all of the respondents in the survey, who were, of course, scattered in lots of uh, different locations around the country, what voting system they actually used, whether it was electronic, whether it was uh, off-scan, and so on. Uh, And uh, then we we made an effort to code the the kind of and and length of the ballot supposed to uh, use, the, the kind of, particularly whether there was a straight party option or not, uh, the length of ballots used which uh, if you've ever actually looked at, at ballots from different jurisdictions I know you see your own jurisdiction but, but the, the length of ballots can vary tremendously uh, and uh, I, I thought that uh, perhaps particularly when uh, ballots got, uh, got very long uh, that this would uh, lead to greater dissatisfaction but in fact uh, for perhaps better worse for the, the purposes of our paper and making an interesting paper uh, that would get published in some high-level journal, but maybe worse for that, but better for the, the, the system, perhaps, uh, for the U.S. Uh, the, the kind of and length of ballots uh, and the voting system used didn't seem to make any difference. Another little thing that's not in the paper, but I, I uh, ran a, uh, just a table because uh, uh, I was interested in this, um, <coughs> people tended to like the system that they had. Uh, so that if they had OpsCAN, they thought OpsCAN was better than electronic systems. But if they had electronics, if they voted on electronic systems, they thought electronic systems were better than OpsCAN systems at uh, protecting privacy and things like that. So um, that's, that's it. Thank you.
5: There is actually a break on the schedule, but we're going to hear about our paper first. You have to sit through that in order to get snacks. <laughs> so thanks to Curb and Rick for organizing the conference. It's fun to come back to Mershawn, if only because I'm flanked by flags for the only time. Uh, this is a first in a series of papers on election administration. I have three co-authors, and one of them, Don Winningham, came all the way from Madison just for this panel. Which we appreciate it. We're going to ask a simple question. Do all laws that attempt to make it easier to vote actually increase voter turnout? In other words, those lowering the legal cost of casting a ballot always lead to at least holding turnout where it is, and hopefully, phrasing it. And our answer will be no. We're going to investigate three laws in particular, election day registration, same day registration, and early voting. might not have been transformational, but there was a pretty dramatic increase in early voting in particular with about 30% of ballots cast before Election Day. That's up from 7% in 1992. So it's a slow transformation, but coming. We're also going to look at combinations of these. So we're interested in packages of election laws and how they interact with one another. And we think of this in the way that maybe a physician does who prescribes treatments for a patient. Individual drugs may have particular effects, but combinations have different effects. There was just a, a new AIDS treatment announced a week or two ago, where the individual drugs had no effect, but the cocktail seemed to, to be promising. In 2008, it's an interesting election to look at these things, because it really was the first where a significant number of states had both Election Day registration and a significant amount of early voting, so it's the first time to examine that combination in a serious way. So we're going to estimate lots of models. You see a lot of data. I'll show you bits of those. We have both aggregate data from counties and individual level data from uh, census surveys. And they show similar pictures, fortunately. And we reached this conclusion some of the reforms do, in fact, increase turnout, but others decrease it. And we have a story for why those divergent effects exist. What do we know from the literature? Uh, the literature goes back at least to Who Votes, a 1980 book by Wolfinger and Rosenstone examine the effect of election laws on voter turnout, and their finding was that the closing date, the date by which one has to register to vote, had the major effect on turnout. And that's because it leaves out voters who become interested at the last moment, just as the campaign's picking up interest. They've missed the deadline, and so are ineligible to vote on election day. Election day registration theoretically overcomes that by allowing voters who wake up on election day interested to go to the polls, both register and vote in a kind of one-stop shopping operation. There are various papers analyzing the effects of EDR on turnout, then heightens reduces. The average effect is about five points across these papers. Yet that's not the reform that most states are interested in. This year, uh, at least in 2008, was early voting. This is now the practice in about 20 states, and as I mentioned, it's on the rise, and so it's one we want to investigate. And yet there are almost no studies of the effects of early voting on turnout. The ones that are out there are Sometimes looking at mail balloting in Oregon, which is a somewhat different animal, or a selected number of elections, and the findings, I would say, are mixed and often null. That is finding no effect of early voting in We're also interested in SDR, same day registration, because it's a combination of these two things. It allows for the one stop shopping of election day registration, but also allows for early voting because this takes place in advance of election day. So let's talk about the mechanisms that might relate election laws to turn out. Here's the assumption we want to challenge, that lowering legal costs for voters always increases turnout. That's the message you hear from reformers. with lower the costs. The costs are what keep marginal or peripheral voters from not showing up on election day. You lower those, remove them, and turnout will go up. But laws affect other things besides individual costs. They affect, for example, the degree to which Election Day is mobilizing, that it turns out voters, and that in turn affects individual costs. We think that Election Day registration, same-day registration, early voting, affect these costs in different ways. I'll explain that in a minute. In particular, we want to distinguish between laws that stimulate new voters, bring out people who otherwise would not have voted, and laws that are merely a convenience that retain people who would have voted in the absence of them and this comes from Berinsky. So stimulation, I think, makes sense. There are people who are on the cusp of being voters or non-voters, and if if there's some reason to to pull them into the active electorate, they'll become voters. For many of us, that's the the hubbub that is election day, traditional election day. Your neighbors are going to the polls, your your co-workers have I voted stickers when you arrive in the office. My child's school was a polling place, and I see it there, driving through town and you see people lined up to vote. There's tremendous news coverage in a traditional election day. And that could be enough to stimulate someone to show up who maybe is on the fence uh, or has some cost to overcome in order to vote. <coughs> election day registration could be part of that. In contrast, something like early voting tends to provide an option for people who are thinking about voting in advance of election day. But it also transfers the, the hubbub of election day over a series of days or weeks. So the news and interest and talk with neighbors that would normally happen on one day in November is spread out over a series of, in some cases, six weeks. I think in Georgia it's 45 days or something. What that does is steal some of the energy from Election Day that would otherwise mobilize those peripheral folks to show up and vote. So, our, our contention is that early voting is a convenience. Um, I've used it, I appreciate it, but it does sap the stimulating effects of Election Day, and so on net, may result in lower voter turnout. Pretty simple hypotheses, something like election day registration is a real stimulant to increase voter turnout. Early voting, again, on net, is negative. So let me tell you about the law so we know what we're talking about. Election day registration is any process that allows an eligible voter to register and vote on election day. Still possible for an EDR state to have a closing date for traditional registration where one walks into an office or mails in a form. but if you miss that closing date, you can still show up on election day itself bring whatever ID you need, register and vote. Same day registration is that process, but in, in advance of election day. So you can register and vote in you know, one-stop shopping. By our definition, this has to be something that's widely available to voters, not a, a technical mechanism in the law that's limited to some subset of people who just moved or arrived in the state uh, recently or something like that. Obviously, SDR is only possible when early voting is possible.
3: Can I ask a definitional advance. question about that? Is that By early voting, do you mean in-person early voting at a polling place, but before Election Day, or do you often do (laughs) it? It's all that.
5: This is any voting that happens in advance of Election Day, but without an excuse. So this could be genuine early voting in Colorado, you're at a voting center, in a shopping mall or something. It could also be mailing an absentee ballot in. It could be in Oregon, voting by mail. It could be casting an absentee ballot in person at a a county office or municipal building in advance of Election Day. But for us that it's not having an excuse that's the key, right? That it's easy, it's encouraged. So these are the three laws. There are others we could examine, but we thought these were the important ones. So we think of this as a Venn diagram with uh, our three categories of laws, EDR, SDR, and early voting, and then possible combinations. And these are our codes based on reading the statutes from 2008. So you'll see, for example, there are three states that allow only EDR, Connecticut, Minnesota, New Hampshire, but nothing else. Some of these states we knew about before, and and other studies of EDR, Minnesota and New Hampshire are always thrown into the mix, but states like Connecticut have not, or Alaska, which is a mix of EDR and early voting. It turns out Connecticut and Alaska allow folks who are not registered to come in on election day and vote only for president, only for federal offices, and then go home. Uh, No states with SDR, but not early voting. There are half a dozen states that have what we call the trifecta, of EDR, SDR, and early voting, a couple that are the mix. You'll see that the bulk of the action is in early voting. That's the reform that's popular, about 20 states. A mix of states more in the south and the west, but you've got New Jersey and uh, Colorado and Oklahoma and others mixed in there. So we're gonna end up estimating models that look at what end up being five cells in this Venn diagram of a table. And we have the cell here, 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 and here. Those are the five options. Let me tell you about the data. It's, two, it's from the 2008 presidential election. We have these five indicators for various combinations. We're going to estimate your standard regression models, multivariate models with a lot of controls. And we're also going to do some matching in advance on all the covariates and we'll run the models again uh, after pre processing the data. It turns out that doesn't matter much. We have aggregate data on county level turnout. Uh, we're going to estimate OLS models since it's a percentage. We have about 3,000 counties. We have a lot of control variables. The ID, uh, first of all, our five indicators that we care most about, but we also control for some other election laws, whether the state has voter ID laws, uh, what the closing date is, for example. We control for a number of demographics at the county level, from the census, education, income, and we control for campaign competitiveness, which is the difference between the Obama and McCain standings and pollster in its final estimate before election day. Then we're going to analyze similar models at the individual level. These are census uh, survey data, so these are uh, 75,000 or so people actually interviewed by the Census Bureau, asked whether they voted or not, estimated logic model. Now the control variables are mostly individual level characteristics like education and uh, race and income and so on, and, and our competitiveness measure. There's nothing very uh, fancy or new here. Let me give you a taste of what one model looks like, and then I'll, I'll show you a, a summary of the results. So here are three specifications of the same model. This is at the county level aggregate data. Dependent variable is the percentage of people who voted in the election. Here are five indicators. So to take one as an example, when a state has only EDR, turnout is up by anywhere from six percent to ten percent, depending on the model. And here we've just pulled around with whether we have fixed effects or weighting or other kinds of things. The results are quite consistent. On the other end of the continuum, when a state only has early voting, Turnout is lower by three to six points, again, depending on the model. <laughs> and other combinations are somewhere in between. So, for example, when you combine EDR and early voting, so one of the good things and one of the bad things in terms of turnout, you get a net effect that's somewhere between those two things, or mildly positive, four or five uh, six points. And the others are somewhere in between those. The other results I won't say much about, most, most of them do what you'd expect. A couple of them don't. I'd be happy to talk about those. QA. These are basic results. Again, this is vanilla uh, regression model, nothing fancy. Uh, then we do a slightly fancier version where we match the data on all of the observed covariance before we run the models. These coefficients are not exactly analogous to the ones I just showed you because here, the treatment is whether the state has this package of reforms or does, or does not. as has none of them. So in the EDR case, the treatment is, does the state have EDR in some form or does it not? And, and every other state is contrasted. Nonetheless, the results are about the same. We run an EDR model. We find a positive effect of 8.4 points. The state has election day registration. Run through the continuum. You get to the other end. When a state has early voting alone, it has a negative effect of about 5 points. So it looks again at the aggregate level like EDR has a positive effect. Early voting has a negative effect. And here's a summary of our models, the ones I just showed you, with the estimates being along the x-axis. So if you're on the right, it's a positive effect on turnout. On the left, it's a negative effect. Um, why don't we start uh, in the middle. Here's EDR. This is the matched model. This is the regular model. These are the estimates. It's about seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 points. Bigger estimates there's a standard error around that. doesn't matter if we match or not. doesn't matter if you just run correlations or not. You don't need a model of the data just to speak these things. Uh, early voting in contrast on the other side, a negative effect of five or six points. The trifecta at the bottom of the all has an effect that's on par with uh, EDR by itself, and any the other effects are somewhere in between. Now we reestimate all these models at the individual level. So we're now using survey data from the census, individual level covariates rather than aggregate stuff. Forget the models, let me just show you the picture. It's largely the same picture, even though it need not be. Remember, we're estimating different things. At the aggregate level, we're estimating the percentage of people who voted in the county. It's a percentage. Here, we're estimating the likelihood that one person votes or does not. So that's a probability. There's only a, a loose relationship between adding up all those probabilities in the state and the overall, or in the county, and overall turnout. Despite that, the effects are quite similar. When EDR is in place, an individual is about three or four points more likely to vote. When early voting's in place, they're about four or five points less likely to vote. The other effects are somewhere in between, as before. So those are the results. Let me walk through some implications. Uh, One, I think, is most obvious, is that not all election laws aimed at lowering the cost of voting have the same effects, and that reformers, policymakers, academics, should be thinking about specifically what their goals are and what the mechanisms are that connect a law to uh, individual behavior, and that laws should not be considered in isolation. We'll see that the packages, combinations of various laws, often have different effects than those laws by themselves. So we want to distinguish be- between reforms that voters like, that make them satisfied, or that they report in the polls they'd like to see, because of their convenience. They would like to have options in how they cast their ballots, and those that actually bring out new voters, and stimulate people who otherwise would not have been at the polls. Through all of the models, it's only EDR that has clear, strong, positive effects on turnout. And we think it does so by getting back to that old Wolfinger and Rosenstone mechanism of overcoming the closing date. It allows people who are not engaged in the campaign in September or October to, (coughs) nonetheless, arrive at the polls on election day in November, register and vote all in one step. So it both combines that two-step process of registering and voting, saving a step there, and also allows for last-minute stimulation of uh, new voters. The only way we find that early voting has any positive effect on turnout is if you combine it with some of these other goodies. When it's together with EDR or together with STR or together with both in the trifecta, we generally find positive effects. But on its own, it it seems to maybe turn out some new voters. We can't see that, what's happening uh, behind the scenes uh, or under the coefficients. But the net effect is, is negative because of the lack of stimulation on election day. I should say also that um, voter turnout is is one dependent variable, and we think it's a pretty important one, Uh, but there are others, and this is where we plan to go in uh, the next iterations of this paper. (coughs) One, for example, is who votes? Not how many people, but what does it do do to the representativeness of the pool of people who actually cast ballots? And then there's an entirely another side to this that focuses on the administration of early voting. What are the financial costs? What are the willingness of local election officials to implement these things when policymakers uh, propose them? Thanks. Why don't we
1: take a break at this point?